0: I'm not afraid of a strong woman. Well, let's be honest. I don't fear a strong woman. Sometimes I am afraid of a strong woman. John Mayer expressed the reality of a strong woman in the 2003 tune Daughters. Perhaps you've heard it. He won a grapple of Grammys for it. And the album, Heavier Things" starts off, I know a girl. She puts a color inside of my world. She's just like a maze where all the walls all continually change. Have you been there? Yes, I think so. And I've done all I can to stand on her steps with my heart in my hands. Now I'm starting to see. And here's, guys, if you can figure this out about life, if you can figure this out about, if you hear nothing else from the time that we've spent together over almost 20 years, hear this. Maybe it's got nothing to do with me. Thank you. (laughs) Amen, Minneapolis. I don't know if Abahail, okay, Hale. okay, Esther's dad who really isn't part of the story because he's dead? I don't know if Abigail ever listened to John Mayer. I mean, how could he, right? But I wonder about the man that we know so little of in this story. Did Esther know him? Did he pass before she was of age? Or did she have vivid memories? Some of you who have lost a parent when you were young can have very vivid memories, Right? Did he protect her when she was young? Did he teach her at an early age? And then that day or the instant where they had to say goodbye? Was it sickness? Old age? Had they already buried Esther's mom? I can imagine Abigail, okay, being strong, okay? I can imagine being this rock, right? His parents would have named him. His name is important. They would have named him hoping that he would be something amazing, that he would do amazing things. And then he got married, right? And then a child, a girl. And then a widower. And then saying goodbye to his daughter. At first, it might have seemed like a rebuke to the family, right? As far as we know, Esther was the only child and a girl, no one to carry on the family name. The only hope, perhaps, a kinsman redeemer in the future? An early death. Giving his child to his nephew. Hoping beyond hope for a future he would never get to see. And we hear John Mayer's words, Fathers, be good to your daughters. And how this daughter would fulfill the meaning of her father's name. Abahel literally means the father of might. How she would fulfill the meaning of his name better than perhaps any other child could have. And it might be worth a thought. If God has given you the ability to influence a woman, a young woman, who knows, she might someday be a leader. The poem, Ultimate Esther, verse twenty-nine, chapter nine, page four sixteen. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, which means the father of might, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirm these practices of Purim, and it is recorded in writing. To review, the name Esther, right? From the first couple of weeks, it could be the Persian name Ishtar, the pagan goddess of love and war, that would have been appropriate. Most people discard that. Most people attach themselves to, to, a, to a derivation of the Persian word for star, so Esther as Star. And Tomasino, as he has done, enlightened us with words and how they would have sounded, even though they were Persian in origin, how they would have sounded in the Hebrew language. Esther sounds a lot like the Hebrew word, let me hide. I mean, it's a compelling story, right? An orphan girl becoming queen of the Middle East. It's like this Alexander Hamilton story, right? Without the self-destructive tendencies and the infidelity and a constitution. But other than that, it's really, really similar. (laughs) I wonder what she would say. Okay, if we could interview her, what would she say? Would she remember her parents? I would want to know, does she remember her dad? Does she remember her mom? Did her mom die in childbirth? What's the story? There's so much that I want to know. How would she portray Mordecai? What is it like being queen? I would want to know. I'd say, take me to the moment, okay? Take me to the moment where you decided that you were going to do what you had to do. Because I would want to learn what was going on in that moment. Because we've been in that moment, right? Sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. We've been in the moment where we knew what we had to do and we didn't do it. What was the trigger? What caused the failure? Likewise, we've been in the moment, right, where we knew what we had to do, and we did it. I, I would want to know, okay? Take me, take me outside the thorn room, okay? That, that moment you've decided you're going to do what you're going to do, and you have to appear before the king. But you know if the scepter doesn't come out, your head is going to be removed from your body. Take me to that moment. What was it like? What were you feeling? Was there butterflies? What was the crazy that was going on inside? Or was it calm? Was it utter and pure calm? It's intriguing as we've been able to, over history, talk to Medal of Honor uh, recipients, people who have earned the Medal of Honor. How often they will say words like, I didn't do anything special. I was just helping out my brother's in arms. Would she have said, I, there was this calm that came over my body because I knew I was doing exactly what I should do. I, I got to believe that she would have been the type of person who would absolutely take the air out of the room. I mean, when she walked into the space, it was just like, whoop, all eyes, right? That she opened her mouth. You just wanted to listen to what she had to say. I wonder, would she be arrogant? You know, that little edge of super, super confidence that tips in the wrong direction? Or would it be a level of modesty? Certainly, she was a woman who understood her place. Yep. Her command was compulsory for all Jews. The girls, the boys, the young boys, the old boys. I mean, yeah. She is the absolute pinnacle, right? Esther. Queen Esther. The commands, the words, the proclamation. Letters were sent to all the Jews in words of peace and truth. Tomasino takes a slightly different tack. He takes the word peace, translates it well-being. He takes the word truth and translates it security. Eugene Peterson translates these words peace into calming, so that essence, truth, is translated into reassuring. Both Tomasino and Peterson are going back to the original Hebrew language and saying... Security and reassuring is a better word translated than the word truth. I'm drawn to these words, right? Because I, I make my living with words. I, I make my living by, by being able to express things, right? I mean, most of us do. Very few of us function on a daily basis without words, Have we given thought to the words that we use? And I get it, sometimes we have to use strong words, okay? Sometimes red faced conversations are are important, I get that. But think about the words that we most frequently use and how we use them and how they land. And is there a default position towards our words? seeking well-being, seeking security, being calming, being reassuring. Esther issues this proclamation and again we discovered last week that if you want to get someone to do something, ask them to do something that they're already doing. So when she obligates her people to this observance of puram it's something that they've already put into practice it's like she's like i want i want to remind you of the promise that you've made i want to remind you of the story that we just lived through i want to remind you to be grateful i want to remind you to be generous I want to remind you to remember the poor. That is the celebration of Purim. And you can see how we pull this into our lives, how the book of Esther is so incredibly relevant to our experience. Reminding us of the promise that we made. The promise, when we first said yes to Jesus Christ, and maybe you're like, well, I didn't use the word promise, but we said yes to Christ, and so I remind us of the words that we spoke and when we said yes to Jesus Christ for the first time, reminding us of the story that we are living in right now, that there's some good parts and there's some really, really hard parts There's some uncertainty, and in the midst of the uncertainty, the story of Esther continually reminds us the unseen force is in the room, in the space, animating our lives, giving us strength, giving us wisdom, giving us what we need to function on a daily basis. Reminding ourselves to be grateful. Ever write a love note to God where you just start saying thank you? Thank you for the morning. Thank you for the coffee. Thank you for an alarm clock that went off. Thank you for your word. I want to remind you to be generous. Timberwood Church is a generous place. I want to remind you to continue in your generosity. And I want to remind us, don't forget the poor. Don't, don't forget those who have less than us. And more just than a visual or a memory trigger, oh, poor people exist. What generous action ought we to embody as we remember the poor? All of that is predictable based on the story of Esther because that is all inherent in the story and in the practice of Purim. But then something unexpected happens. And if it doesn't hit you as odd, it hit me as odd, and I'm like, wait a second. The days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons. Mordecai the Jew, Queen Esther obligated them, obligated themselves and their offspring. And then that phrase with regards to their fasts and their lamenting. And it's intriguing because the commentator's are like, we really don't know what the author of Esther is talking about. Are these fasts that uh, Zechariah, a prophet uh, of the time, would have encouraged? And the commentators are like, and they make guesses. And none of their guesses land particularly firmly, so if they're going to guess, I'm going to guess. Because I think my guess is no different, no worse, and certainly maybe just a little bit better because it's my guess instead of their guess, right? So here's my guess, what this phrase means with regards to their fast and their lamenting. Imagine that you're a people, you've been taken captive, and you're in exile in a foreign land. And you had just escaped certain destruction. Wouldn't you still want to go home? Wouldn't, wouldn't you just want to be where the only language you heard was your native tongue? Wouldn't your heart ache for the promise to be completed? Even though you were still alive, even though a miraculous thing happened even though the unseen force was moving in powerful ways wouldn't you want just that final step a number of years ago okay i walk across spain i'm on the camino de santiago and there's a number of stories that i've told out of this but but one of the things as i got to the end of the time together one of the things that i wanted more than anything else was just to be with my people I wanted to be in a restaurant, or I wanted to be in space where I heard a language that I understood completely. And even though the walk had been incredible, right, you know, covered 1,000 kilometers in 30 days, right? I mean, it was a great, great, great time. I still just wanted to get home. And so, Yeah. Even in the wake of victory, there is fasting and lamenting because not everything is right. Because we're not home yet. We're not home. We're, we're not home. You might think this is your home. This isn't your home. We're not home. We're not there yet. And, and for those of us who know those who have gone home, whose sojourn is over, yeah, there's a little bit of ache, right? Or a lot of ache, depending upon... But if I really think about it, there's a whole lot of jealousy because they're on the other side. They've made it home. They get to see the face of love each and every day. Their hopes are reality. Their pain no longer exists. So yeah, even in the wake of victory, there is fasting and lamenting because not everything is right. The final thing I leave you with is my wisdom manifesto. How have you been doing? outstanding so you've accomplished your wisdom manifesto right because that was the assignment at the beginning of Esther we said we were going to do that together right I obligated you truly I obligated you you didn't say you were willing to do it I just said here you need to do this so some of you are like saying well you're not exactly following the book of Esther I agree Wisdom manifesto, okay? A manifesto is a a manifest. A manifest is is a statement of truth about a shipment. A manifesto is a statement of truth about a belief. Often we think of it, at least on our side of the ocean, a communist manifesto as not necessarily a good thing, right? But we can have a manifesto, a, a thing that is true about our lives. Sermon on the Mount, you could argue, is Jesus' manifesto. So my wisdom manifesto, if you want to copy mine, knock yourself out. Number one, I am not wise. Number two, am I willing to be obedient and disobedient? For me, that is, am I willing to be obedient to the right things and disobedient to the wrong things? Because when I mess up in life, I am frequently disobedient to the right things and obedient to the wrong things. But it's both, right? Am I willing to be obedient to the right things and disobedient to the wrong things? Number three, am I willing to let an outside voice speak into my existence? Mordecai occupies this space for Esther. Am I willing to let an outside voice speak into my existence, a trusted voice? My ego, number four. Is it in the way? And if yes, how can I get my ego out of the way? If you say, no, my ego is not in the way, I would urge you to reconsider whether or not your ego still might be in the way. That was four or five. What role do I play in the redemptive work of God? And the redemptive work of God for me can be a redemptive moment, but it can also be redemptive movement. And we define those in two different ways, right? A redemptive moment, say I have the opportunity to see something extraordinary happen in your life. I am there, the ringside seat, I am in the space when it happens, and I'm like, woohoo! I played a role in a redemptive moment of God. But there's also redemptive movements, where I don't get to see the end result. I don't get to see the victory. I don't get to see you score the winning touchdown, but I'm there, I'm there through a process. And sometimes we're there for redemptive moments, and sometimes, more often I would argue, we're there for redemptive movements. Five, six, where am I in the great reverse? When the end, when everything is flipped upside down, Number seven, what is my obligation to do, to remember, and all of the things that come out of that? And number eight, in my wisdom manifesto, what words do I speak? Are they words of peace? Are they words that calm? Are they words that reassure because that's the standard. Please pray with me. In the quietness of the moment, I challenge you with the book of Esther, which is to say, in the quietness of the moment, I challenge you with the Holy Scripture inspired by the Spirit of God maintained and recorded and preserved for us for millenniums. In the quietness of the moment, what's God asking of you, of me? Of us To be sure, for some of us, we've never started that moment with God. And if you're here today and you've never said yes to the unseen force in the room, you've never said yes to Jesus Christ, then just start, please. Come on, man. Just say, Jesus, I want you as my Savior. And that's not the end. I'll be the first to say that, but it is the beginning. And for all of us who have said yes to Jesus Christ, what is the obligation that God is asking us to embrace? Father, grant us the wisdom. Grant us the strength. Grant us the ability. Grant us the hope. Grant us the longing for that day. Thank you for this book. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.